there are many people that are still very skeptical, as happens in science when a great idea enters it. When I read Engelman, I thought, aha, this man has it right. The most interesting thing about what Edelman is doing is what Edelman is thinking. What Edelman is thinking is that the brain is a Darwin machine. It's not just an issue of philosophy and ideology. It is a very hard scientific issue in these days. Here is a brain theory that fits the behavioral observations that we've been collecting for all these years. What Edelman accomplished is to present a picture on the brain and on the mind that shows you how these two can relate to each other. I get a very excited feeling that Edelman at least has given us the first global theory, the first sort of model to work on. And um, I think there's, there's never been anything like this before. Charles Darwin was sitting in this room thinking about a new theory, evolution by natural selection. That idea would become the foundation of modern biology. But Darwin's theory was incomplete. Although it explained the origin of all living things, it could not yet account for perhaps the most important biological phenomenon, the human mind. We really need a theory just for the same reasons that Darwin needed a theory to explain the origin of species, to explain the origin of the diversity of perceptions, sensations, and thoughts. You certainly need a theory. In his search for a new theory, Gerald Edelman has turned away from a machine model of the mind back to the fundamental principles of the science of living things. The immune system adapts the body to its environment minute by minute, and it works by selection. The brain also adapts to the world, but second by second. Edelman's work on the immune system suggested an extraordinary and controversial leap of ideas, to start thinking about the brain in terms of selection. Well, in a certain way, you can think of this idea of selection in terms of your own work in the film. When one looks at a film, it looks very tidy, and very often you get the illusion that it's really a replica of life, that things are happening just as they really happen. But if you look at the process itself, there's an awful lot of stuff on the cutting room floor. Well, what does that mean? It, in some sense, you might even say that all art is selection or editing. And what an artist does, or I suppose a film director, is take an awful lot of circumstances, even under a rather vague idea, and then as the idea begins to build, put the pieces together and construct them, leaving a lot of debris on the cutting room floor, selecting against and selecting for. When we look out onto the natural world, we see beauty and order. For more than a century, we have thought of living things in terms of natural selection, the one force in nature that can produce complex forms. How fitting then to invoke the same principle 
to explain the complexity of the human brain and its products. Edelman has shown that Darwin's idea has the power to explain not only the origin of nature, but the origin of mind. Let me start with Descartes and say how he posed the problem, because even though one doesn't agree with him, it sets the context actually very beautifully. It sets what the problem is. Alfred North Whitehead, in his book, Science in the Modern World, made an interesting statement. He said, uh, at the very beginnings of Western science in the 17th century, two figures removed the mind from nature. The first was Galileo, and the second was Descartes. And so the problem is, well, how can you put the mind back into nature, all right? Because if you can't put it back into nature, science can't deal with it. So what do you do? Well, another figure came, and I think he's largely responsible, even though he's beyond a philosopher, he was a psychologist as well, and that's William James. He said, no, you can actually study consciousness, you can actually do psychological studies and behavioral studies. Now, this fell into oblivion uh, with the early development of behaviorism, not in neuroscience, but in psychology, where you said, none of that mental stuff counts. Well, thanks to the cognitive psychology movement in the last three decades, that's been replaced. But unfortunately, I think a lot of cognitive psychology um, treats the brain and mind as part of, as a machine model, as, as a computer, a Turing machine. So the question I've been interested in is, uh, can we go beyond that? And can we relate the brain theory I talked about to the issue of consciousness? We live in a in a view of science that's highly mechanized. We've been talking about essentially the machine model of the mind, the computer, instructionism. Uh, I'm against that, as you know. I think the facts don't stand up for that. The facts stand up for individuality, for the fact that you don't really know what's going to happen, and that you can't really prescribe how an individual, even with strong values, is going to behave in every single circumstance. I won't talk about freedom, but I will talk about the value of individuality. This theory implies that the individual variations, both of structure and experience in each individual, can't be valued highly enough because you don't know what they're going to lead to until the selection's been made. Now consider a machine. All machines are alike except those that are noisy. Throw away the noisy ones. Under a machine view of the world, all that we consider is humane, all that we consider is fundamental about the notion of the individual, really doesn't have a place. And if you want me to give you a feeling of a story that I think exemplifies the essence of learning, gift, value, and accidental circumstance, it's about Beethoven's landlady, who says, Beethoven, get out of my house. Your cat drinks my milk, you throw the laundry in the stairwell, and you pound on the piano all night, I can't sleep. And he says, Mrs. Schmidt, don't do this to me. You're my inspiration. And she says, ha, 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 ha. And that, I think, is a perfect example of someone grabbing a circumstance that seems irrelevant and turning it into a great symphony by selection. Welcome to Naturalizing Consciousness, everybody. We're really honored that you're all here. And uh, we're uh, really excited to be together and to share some really cool things with you that everyone's been thinking about for quite some time. 
we're here to have as, as a tribute to Gerald Edelman, and what better essence of uh, individuality and brilliance and a symphony of a life than to introduce you to my dear friend and um, extraordinary colleague, um, neuroscientist, and the son of Jerry Edelman, um, David Edelman. Thank you, Natalie. And, and um, you know, I, I, I'm, of course I'm biased, but if, if any life in this world kind of exemplifies the story that, uh, that my father just told about Beethoven's landlady <laughs> and uh, about circumstance and valuing circumstance because or evaluating, evaluating a particular situation because you can't anticipate where it will lead, it's kind of my father's professional art. It's the way he lived his life. It's the fields that he ended up uh, endeavoring to explore. And those were at least three fields, in fact, more, actually, really. But he had no idea, I think, at the very beginning of this, as a young MD uh, working in uh, the wards of the American Hospital in Paris at night, as, as both an army captain and an MD, uh, delivering servicemen's babies and all this, he had no clue that his life would take precisely this course. He didn't know he was interested in this nascent science of immunology. I'm not even sure people in 1956 and 57 were referring to it as a science of immunology yet. But it was one of the great mysteries, right? So how does the immune response work? How does uh, an animal like a rabbit, or us, a human being, deal with, say, a compound that a chemist can make in a laboratory that's never seen the light of day on the face of the earth, no animal has ever experienced it, no animal's immune system has ever experienced it, and yet, quite often, the rabbit or the human or whoever you happen to inject with this compound is able to mount a largely successful immune response. That was really mysterious at the time. And that's really got his juices going. And so he endeavored to sort of solve this problem, and I guess he eventually did. And in, in, in sort of working his way toward a solution, he realized really that the existing model, which was what we might call an instructionist model, that is the idea that when an antibody encounters a foreign invader, the antibody comes up, it reconforms itself, it reshapes the protein structure, you know, to conform to the shape of the antigen, and in so doing, destroys the antigen, you know, kills off the antigen. And that was a prevailing theory at the time in the 1950s, such luminaries as Linus Pauling really believed that in their heart of hearts. My father comes along and through a, a, a fair amount of, of work uh, by he and his colleagues over the better part of, of 10 years at Rockefeller University, first Rockefeller Institute, um, he not only deciphered the structure of the entire human antibody molecule, he also came to the conclusion that, you know, wow, this idea of instruction, it's kind of off, it can't possibly work. What if it's the case that you have a repertoire of antibodies, they're all different. No two are necessarily exactly alike. I, I should say no two species of antibody are exactly alike because there are replicas, there are clones of a particular antibody, but you have millions, tens of millions of different varieties. And you have that repertoire and you have much of that repertoire from early on, even though you're generating more and more over the course of your, your young life, you come to the world with a lot of that already in place. What if it's the case that something comes in say it pulses through your, your lymph nodes and encounters a lot of different antibody populations and they're all different. And somehow, just perchance, 
it hits the right one, and the lymph system is a really good place for that to happen. Um, and the fit is okay, it's good enough. Good enough to kill that antigen, that foreign invader, but also good enough to kill an antigen or a foreign invader that's somewhat different, not completely different, but somewhat different. So instantly, not only do you have that pre-existing repertoire, you also have individual antibodies that can deal with some degree of variety themselves. That's a huge functional repertoire. And that sounds a lot like an idea that was, that was finally agreed upon or more or less accepted by consensus, at least in England, in, you know, in the, by, by the 1860s, 1859 actually, natural selection. Because you're dealing with a population. So my father thought about that, and then somehow he worked his way through. He became a developmental biologist studying the mystery of embryogenesis. And then he became eventually a neuroscientist. And, and of course, other people had speculated about these kinds of things, and he was influenced by them. But he asked himself, you know, what if it's the case that the brain is sort of like the immune system or like a population of organisms in the wild? What if there's a repertoire, and in this case it would be a repertoire of groups of neurons connected by what we call synapses, wired together, and the world comes in and pinches on it, and the world actually selects from a pre-existing repertoire of possible combinations. And so, to sort of sum that up, I don't want to talk forever, uh, to sum that, that idea up, you can use sort of two words, and this was the title of a famous book by a, a, a French biologist named Jacques Monod. The book was called Chance and Necessity. And I'm going to tell you a little, sort of a funny parable that captures the essence of that. It's sort of a, maybe a riff on the Beethoven story. But picture this. There's a guy on the F train headed into Brooklyn late at night. It's a sweltering night. It's, it's the peak of the summer. It's mid-July in New York and 95 degrees, 95% humid, humidity, 95 degrees temperature. He's sweating like a you-know-what. And he's in a rush to get home because he's stressed by the, the thought that his wife may be cheating on him. So he rushes home to their walk-up. He, he runs up the stairs. He's panicked and angry at the same time. He's looking around the apartment, seeing if he can find any trace of anything that would indicate you know, his wife has stepped out on him. Can't find anything. Goes out on the balcony. He looks down. He sees this guy like loosening his tie on the fire escape and they're brushing the sweat off his, his brow. He gets really angry. So he picks up the nearest objects, which is kind of, this is a very economy flat. It's a refrigerator next to his body. He picks up the refrigerator, drops the, the, the refrigerator on the guy's head, and then immediately dies of a heart attack. Okay. And so now imagine that, that the scene switches to heaven. Now we're in heaven, and St. Peter is looking down on looking down on these three men. And he says, all right, gentlemen, you know, you've, done, you've, you've pursued a life of good works. I think it's a pretty foregone conclusion you're entering the pearly gates. So, but I need to ask you first, this is kind of a thing I do, I want to ask you, how did you end up here? So the first guy says, I, I, was, I suspected that my, my wife was having an affair, and I was so angry one night, I, I looked down on the balcony, I saw this guy, you know, wiping the sweat off his brow, I thought, ah, oh, it's Bastard. I grabbed the nearest object the refrigerator, I dropped it on his head, and I died of a heart attack. And, you know, the guy, uh, the, the St. Peter says, oh, that's okay, I understand, you're in. 
second time. Well, you know, I, it was a hot night. I had just come home from work. It was, you know, I, I hadn't seen my girlfriend in a while. I was lonely, but I stepped out. I was kind of distracted. And all of a sudden, this refrigerator drops in my head. And then St. Peter said, all right, well, that kind of makes sense. The third guy, he said, turns to the third guy, he says, what's the story with you? You know, why, how did you end up here? Oh, I don't know, St. Peter. I was minding, I was just sitting in a refrigerator minding my own. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, you know, that, that story, which is my favorite, my father's favorite story, so I, I tripped it off my dad. Sorry, Dad. Um, but that, that story captures the essence of what he, we just talked about. And um, I think, you know, that hits the nail on the head. But that, that, so that both describes, in a way, my dad's career because it had this sort of twists and turns and only after it was more or less not over, but late in the day in his career, could you sort of see there was this tendril of commonality running through all of the disciplines he chose to study. And the commonality was something that you, know, you can sum up by the term selection. This notion of selectionism, this idea that these, these vastly vast and complex biological systems, um, you can more or less think of them as repertoire or populations of animals or whatever have you, and something in the environment or the little milieu in which these things exist is selecting from the repertoire and shaping, in fact, shaping, in fact, that entity or that group, whether it's, an, it's, it's antibody populations, population of organisms, or perhaps um, the brain. Thank you.